Appreciate the musical offerings of our musicians today. It's a very blessing. Well, uh, if you have your bulletins, uh, look on the front page, or if you know our church purpose statement, you don't need to do that. We haven't done this for a while, but we used to do this every Sunday. Remind ourselves why we are here as a church. And so, uh, those of you here for the first time, don't think we're too weird here, but uh, just want to remind ourselves, I think it's important to keep in focus why we, why we are here at 11th Street Baptist Church. So... Uh, Look there on the front of your bulletin if you're not familiar with our statement of purpose, but 11th Street Baptist Church exists to exalt God through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. We will do this by extending God's love to all, evangelizing the lost for the gospel of Jesus Christ, edifying the body of believers, and equipping the saints to serve the Lord. Wow, a lot of you still remember that. It's great. All right, children may be dismissed for Children's Church. Our text today is found in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. We're going to continue to dwell on uh, this verse for this week and a little bit of next as well. Our series of messages comes from the pastoral letters of Paul. Uh, this is three letters in the New Testament, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And uh, been working on this for some time. We're in the last division of this series of messages, which I'm calling Passing the Faith On. focuses on passing faith on to other people faithfully and to another generation. For the Apostle Paul, for him to do a good job in ministry was not sufficient. It was very important to him to pass the, the gospel ministry on faithfully to others so that when he passed off the scene, it was still going on, still chugging along, in fact, would keep going on for many generations after that. His strategy for doing this in a local church uh, was to strengthen the church as the household of God, or another way to put this, to strengthen the family structures within the household of God. So uh, there's a couple of passages here in Timothy and Titus that talk about elders and deacons and some other officers and things like that. And we should see these passages in which he explains the qualifications for these officers as his attempt or uh, his effort in this regard to strengthen the family structure in the church for uh, what the husband and father was or is for the family or the household, so the elders were for the church as a whole. That's how he sees this. Now last week, last week we began uh, giving background to this matter of elders in the church by talking about the biblical story of elders in the Old Testament. We spent quite a bit of time on that. Today we're going to move on to the New Testament, but we saw that elders were a group of older or experienced men 
who together exerted influence in their community or in their society. Uh, we learned the organization of a society by means of elders uh, is referred to as eldership. It's not a Bible word, but it's a word that uh, writers and authors and commentators refer to. This, this whole system of organizing a society by means of elders. We looked at some characteristic of elders, and let me just quickly remind you of those. Uh, there were five. It's built on the extended family or household. Or the, the household, the extended family, is the basic unit of this whole system. It's a representative way of organizing a society. The heads of households would represent those members of their households to the rest of the society. And they would bring the concerns of society back to their own members in their household. Uh, this system of organizing a culture was based on the idea that wisdom gained from experience came with age. That is, uh, they wanted people in positions of influence who had been around the block a few times and uh, made a few mistakes and they know what, they have a little bit longer perspective on what life is about rather than somebody who's just brand new at life. Uh, we saw that uh, the system was patriarchal. Authority was vested in the senior men in the society, heads of household, clan, or tribe. And finally, that it was conciliar. That means that decisions were made by groups of leaders, uh, not particularly by individuals like governors or kings. Uh, the elders would get together and have a council. They would come to consensus on whatever they're trying to work through the problems, and then they would go on. So with that uh, Old Testament back in, background in mind, I wanted to do the same thing with what the Bible says in the New Testament uh, about elders, and particularly what it says about elders in the church. Uh, our text is, again, Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, uh, where Paul writes to Titus, his emissary ministering on the island of Crete. He says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And he goes on and explains the qualifications and we'll look at those a little bit later in the message. And we talked about the Hebrew words that are translated elder in the Old Testament, there is one Greek word also translated elder in the New Testament. And it means almost exactly the same as those Old Testament words as well. Occurs, uh, the, the word occurs about 60 times in the New Testament. Um, as in the Old Testament, this word can refer to uh, an older person or an old person. One example here is Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Uh, where uh, Peter is speaking, he's quoting a verse from the Old Testament. He says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Then he says, your young men will see visions and your old men, there's that word, elders it could be, will dream dreams. So the word can refer to older men as opposed to younger men. But in most cases, the word referred to an office holder in either the Jewish Sanhedrin or the Jewish synagogue or in the Christian church. As also in the Old Testament, 
the word elder rarely appears in the singular. It's almost always plural uh, with this sense that, you know, these, there's a group of them helping to make decisions in the body in which they're, they're uh, operating. All right, so let's now talk about what the Gospels have to say about elders. Now, when I'm referring to the Gospels, we're talking about the first four books in the New Testament, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four accounts of Jesus and his ministry. Now, uh, if you think about it for a moment, you wouldn't expect these books to say about much about elders in the church because the church doesn't really get going until after the period of the Gospels when Jesus has... Uh, died on the cross, he rose up from the grave, he ascended to heaven, and then the Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost, right? And that's where the church takes off. But that's in the book of Acts after the time of the gospel. So most of the reference to elders in uh, the four gospels has to do with elders in the Jewish life and culture of the time. Sort of similar to the Old Testament. So let's just take a few minutes to talk about the elders of Jews at the time of Jesus. Uh, as I said last time, elders were a part of Hebrew society all the way from Moses through Ezra, and then they crop up again in the New Testament. But there's a period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's called the intertestamental period. It lasted about 400 years. There was no prophet speaking during that time. We don't have any scripture, but there was a lot of history going on during that time. And one of the things that crystallizes is uh, this eldership as an institution in Israel in a couple of ways. And we see it, uh, first of all, in the synagogues, because each of the synagogues was uh, organized or ruled by uh, a council of elders. But more importantly and more prominently, we're told about the operation of the great council of elders in the city of Jerusalem, which appears in the New Testament by the name of the Sanhedrin. You've heard of the Sanhedrin. Well, that is a council of elders that was basically uh, the body that regulated, regu that regulated and ruled over the nation of Israel under the authority of the Roman governors, the Roman overseers, the Roman overlords, right? They were... They were under the heel, iron heel of Rome at the time, but they allowed this council of about 70 uh, priests and Pharisees and elders of the people to meet together and regulate their society as long as they did it within the confines of uh, the Roman rulers. All right, so there's this going on. This is a big council of elders. And elders, as we learned last time, are supposed to be old and wise and experienced, right? And they're supposed to lead their family or their society in a good and a right way in the way that God wants them to go. But when we, we read about the Sanhedrin, this great council of elders, they are not the good guys in the New Testament. They're always at this adversity relationship with Jesus, the Son of God who sent into the world. And these powers that be in the Council of Elders, in the Great Sanhedrin, are always at, at odds with one another. The elders are sending representatives to Jesus, and they're trying to trip him up and kind of harass him and see if they can get him to mess up in some kind of way so he can be discredited. And Jesus says of these elders that they care more about their traditions 
the traditions of elders than they do about obeying the law of Moses. And it is this tension between the Lord Jesus and his council of elders that eventually led to his arrest and his trial, his conviction, and his execution on the cross. Now what does that tell us about elders? Well, it tells us that despite the fact that, the, that elders are supposed to be older and wiser, there are times when they can get really far away from what God wants them to be and wants them to do. You know, they can get full of themselves and they can get protective about their own power. They can become self-absorbed and they can get their minds and their priorities messed up and start doing things that are really awful and contrary to the will of God. And that's what happened in the time uh, of the Lord Jesus. This adversarial relationship. Instead of wisely guiding their community according to the will of God, they were fighting against the will of God. So this whole thing about eldership turns out to be a sword that can cut two different ways, right? It can cut for good, but it, it, in the wrong hands, it can cut for evil and for bad and do a lot of harm. So it's critically important if you're going to have a system of eldership or have uh, any kind of government, really, you've got to get good people in the positions of influence in the society. Am I right? Now think about what's happened to our nation. This isn't particularly a political sermon, but, uh, or, but, but think about it. You know, there are people who have a very different morality than we believe in as Christians. And some of them have figured out how to change our society. They know that if they can get key people in, they can get people of their persuasion in key positions like the Supreme Court of the United States, they can influence the whole society. And that's exactly what has happened. While Christians are just kind of go, going along, you say, well, we'll just vote for so-and-so, we'll vote for so-and-so, and we're not really thinking in those kind of terms. But uh, that's what's happened, really, to a great degree. And the same thing can happen in churches, brothers and sisters. You get the wrong people in, the, in places of influence in the church. It can be a disaster for a church or a congregation. And so, uh, whatever form of government they use or organization. So that's, uh, that's an overview of elders and, and the lesson we kind of get from elders in the Gospels. Now, uh, let's talk about elders as they begin to develop in the church in Jerusalem. Now, the book of Acts is our handbook for this because the, the church comes to be there in the beginning of the book of Acts and then it traces the development of the church as it grows and expands throughout the entire Roman uh, Empire from Jerusalem to, to Judea to Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. As the church begins, as the first four, five, six chapters of Acts, it is the apostles who are the clear-cut leaders there in the church. When we come to Acts chapter 6, uh, the church has grown so much that they need some help. So they, import, they, they appoint seven men to help them out with a food distribution program that they've gotten for the elders there. All right. Now, they're not called deacons, but they're a lot of times, uh, because of the similarity, they're thought of the precursors of deacons there in Acts. Uh, but it's not until Acts chapter 11, almost halfway through the, the book of Acts, that we begin to hear about elders. 
uh, in almost an off-the-cuff manner, we find the first reference to elders in the church in Acts chapter 11 and verse 30. Now, the church has been expanding. There's some people up in Antioch and Syria. They hear there's a famine down in Jerusalem. So they want to send an offering. And at the end of this chapter, talking about their response to the need, it simply says, uh, and this they did, that is, they, they took this offering, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the what? To the elders. All right, well, where did the elders come from? All of a sudden, the church in Jerusalem has elders, and this is the first mention of it. Well, we hear a lot more about elders in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 is when there's this great uh, controversy in the church. The controversy has to do with whether Gentiles have to become Jews in order to become Christians. And the, 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 the traditional Jews are saying, yes, they do. And the, the, more, uh, the, the less traditional ones are saying, no, they don't. So there's a big controversy going on, and it threatens to tear the church in half. So they call a council, and it's described in Acts chapter 15. It's called the Council of Jerusalem. And the elders of the church in Jerusalem are mentioned uh, a number of times throughout this passage, and they play a tremendously important part in this decision-making process. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. So now we've got the apostles, and we've got this council of elders together there in Jerusalem making this big decision about what's going to happen to the church. Evidently, somewhere between Acts 6 and Acts 11, elders came into play in the Jerusalem church as having a principal role in leadership in the church. And the question that just begs to be asked is, well, if elders were so important in the church, these offices uh, suddenly rise to the top and they're making all these decisions, where did this all come about? How come they don't describe the beginning of the elders like they did the, the, the deacon ministry so in Acts, Acts chapter 6? This is kind of a mystery. As one commentator observes, the New Testament in no place provides an account of the first ordination of elders. They just kind of appear suddenly and mysteriously. They just rise to, to uh, our appearance there. And what it does is reminds us of the same thing that happened in the Old Testament. Do you remember when God needed to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt? Last week we talked about this. He sends Moses to the elders of the people. God does not institute elders. He does not provide for them a command. They're already there in society. They were a naturally occurring way of organizing these these societies into families and clans and groups and things like that and tribes and they were just there so God taps into these in the Old Testament to accomplish his divine purpose and it appears that something very similar happens to the church there in the New Testament because you know the New Testament in the, in the church was the early church was com composed of thousands of members uh, hundreds of families uh, but the church met sometimes in a large group, perhaps in the temple precincts, but they often meet in small groups in homes. So somebody who had a big house would start having worship services in his home for his family and his extended relatives, 
his friends, maybe the servants in his house. And then people, as they'd come into church, they would gravitate to these little home, home groups or home churches. And so each one would be led by the head of the household for that house, perhaps, or some other leader from the church who was called perhaps an elder. And it's this group of leaders of little many churches or many pastors that get together, apparently, and are making these decisions on behalf of the church. So it's very similar to what we see in the Old Testament, that uh, this representative group of body, the people, the, the heads of the households representing the families are getting together to work out the things that are important for the church as a whole. However this comes about, it's plain that the church of Jerusalem under the leadership of the apostles embrace eldership as a way to organize the new community of believers in Jesus Christ. All right, we've talked about the Gospels. We've talked about the book of Acts. Now, let's talk about the elders in the mission churches. Uh, the, we've talked about the elders in the Jerusalem church. Now, how about the outlying churches as the, as the gospel expanded? Several passages tell us that the apostles took the gospel to other areas of the Roman Empire and often organized their churches using this same pattern. Uh, and here's a couple of verses for you. We'll go through this kind of quickly, but uh, Paul, on a return from one of his missionary journeys, it says of him that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting. In Acts chapter 20, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, Paul stops at the port city of Miletus and he calls the elders of the Ephesian church to him, uh, and they have a meeting there. Uh, the apostle Peter gives instruction to elders uh, of the churches to whom he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. James speaks of uh, if someone is sick, to call the elders of the church to, to them and allow them to pray for them. So it appears that uh, this was a system that was prevalent in many of the churches, in the mission churches that were established by Paul and others. So that brings us now up to the pastoral letters and the appearances of these, these description of qualification for elders in, in these particular passages. There's two prominent passages that outline qualification for elders in 1 Timothy and in Titus. And uh, there are the passages for you. Uh, in Titus, Paul principally calls these uh, servants in the church, he calls them elders. And we saw that here in our text. Uh, he tells Titus that what was left unfinished to go and take care of it and appoint elders in every town. However, in the parallel passage in Timothy, when he talks about the leaders, he calls them overseers. Uh, if you have the King James, it likely says bishop, which is just another way to translate the same word. Now, I just want to clue you in that there, those are two different names for the same animal, all right? Overseers, elders, basically the same position, but with different names, slightly different connotation of what they do. There's a third word, by the way, that describes the same position, and that is pastor. The word that's used most uh, frequently in the New Testament is elder. Second most common is overseer. Third, third most common, least common, is that of pastor. But that's the word we like to use most commonly, is pastor. And uh, those are all very similar words 
and uh, they're used in different places for different reasons. So when uh, we read these passages and you see two different names, don't get confused. They're referring to the same, the same thing, all right? So now, uh, these two passages in Timothy and Titus provide lists of qualifications for the elders or overseers in the church. There's a lot of similarity between these two lists, uh, but they're not by any means exactly the same. It's not like Paul had a list of uh, what the qualifications were for elders in his pocket and he pulled it out every time and quoted it every time he needed to do something. He had this list in his head and whenever he needed to teach on it, he would probably say it in different words and sometimes even tailor it for the specific situation. So there's a lot of similarities and we can kind of uh, cull from both of them and that's what I'm going to do here. Uh, but according to these passages, qualification for elders were as follows. And I summarize them in four different aspects here or four different qualifications. First of all, elders had to be above reproach in uh, their daily lives. Now, you remember that we said when we're talking about elders in the gospel, uh, it was really important who you get in these positions. You've got to have good people. And for the church, it was important to have people with sterling characters, people who had a lifestyle that represented what the gospel was all about, people of solid, sound Christian character. And so you get a description uh, like we have here from Titus chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. Uh, an elder must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Those are all the nots. Now here's the positive, positive things. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, one who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So here's a description of the character, of the kind of person that you need to have in this influential position. Paul is concerned that the right type of person be appointed to the leadership position in the church uh, for the well-being of the church. Second, elders had to be able to teach the Word of God and to do so correctly and effectively. Now, this goes back to Paul's concern for passing on the gospel. You had to have the right gospel. It had to be the pure gospel and not messed up or changed or adulterated in some kind of way. And we need to be able to pass it on to others. So that's why the emphasis here is on teaching. Able to teach the Word of God, to do so correctly and effectively. So in 1 Timothy, Paul writes, the overseer must be simply able to teach. He elaborates in Titus, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. There's that idea of being entrusted with something very precious. And so uh, he's got to hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it was taught to him so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And this is this concept of passing along the gospel purely and securely and strongly to other people by getting these people into who can teach in key positions. Third, elders 
had to have proven people management skills, I will call them. They had to be able to work with people. Now, they say of a pastor's job, uh, it would be easy to be a pastor if there were no people, right? That's, that's kind of a joke, all right? All right. Thank you for laughing there. Give me a courtesy laughter there. The whole object is, though, to work with people, right? There would be, and people can be difficult to work with, just as your own family, the members of your own family can be difficult to work with. This is not just learning your ABCs here. It's not easy to work with difficult people, but a person who is going to be a leader in the church needs to be able to maneuver and work successfully with people to encourage them to go on in the Lord instead of the kind of person that's always starting up arguments and fights and rubbing people the wrong way. And so um, we have things like uh, what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. Now the overseer is to be, first of all, faithful to his wife. He's got to have a strong marriage, successful marriage relationship. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. In other words, he's not out there just beating around with a stick into submission. You know, he's winning their obedience by his wise oversight and leadership and working to uh, make the family go. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Does that give you some insight in what this guy's going to be doing? We're going to talk about that in a minute. So um, the elder has to have a proven people management skills, Paul says. Um, and finally, we talked about this part uh, last time, but elders uh, had to be mature, more experienced men, uh, the maturity and the experience part is inherent in the title elders. You know, again, this idea of having experience and that leading to wisdom, hopefully. <laughs> That's the way it is. As someone who's married and probably has some children, so he's more mature. And uh, in Timothy, he says he must not be a recent convert, not somebody who's new in the faith. You want somebody with an established, proven track record. Well, from these verses, we gain this picture of what a New Testament elder does. Paul doesn't really talk about what the elder is supposed to do. He just talks about what kind of person he's supposed to be. But from that description, we can tell several things. Elders set a godly example for others of how a Christian ought to live. There it is. Okay. Got this person. You know, it's just like in a family, right? The kids look up to mom and dad. And what they see dad doing... They're going to do too because they want to be like him. And so that's the way it is in the church. The people that are in positions of uh, leadership like this need to be the kind of people that others can look at and model their lives after. Um, uh, the elder was to uh, teach the true gospel to members and refute those who taught otherwise. And the elder managed the affairs of the household of God, particularly the people matters of the house of God. As the father and husband was in the home, so the elder was in the household of God. Now, other than uh, the mention of the fact that there are 24 elders in the presence of God in the book of Revelation, that pretty much is the overview of this idea of elders in the New Testament. And, uh, 
as uh, last week, I just want to point out that this whole idea of eldership is a biblical, family-based way of organizing a community. Uh, it was embedded in the cultures in which of the Old Testament and of the New Testament. God chooses to tap into this pre-existing family organization to use it for His purposes, both in Israel and in the church. So we might just conclude by asking, where does that leave us today? As you probably know, this whole idea of strong family units and extended family is not particularly a characteristic of American society. Uh, we tend to be very individualistic. And when we emphasize families, we're usually just thinking in terms of mom and dad and kids. And uh, so, uh, due to the forces in our society, a lot of our traditional families has broken down, have broken down. Uh, they've broken apart, and we've got a lot of fragmented families. Sometimes the families get put back together again, so we've got like blended families. Um, there's nothing wrong with that, but then uh, it gets kind of complicated. You've got several sets of grandparents, and... Uh, and uh, all this is just kind of pointing out to say that our situation today in our society, as far as families are concerned, very different than the strong extended family situation that already existed in those cultures back then. We don't have that to, to fall back onto or to even to tap into. So next time I want to look at why the church fathers chose to embrace this system of eldership uh, and uh, apply it into the church, and how churches today might be able to apply what we've learned here about elders in our contemporary situation. Now, that's another sermon, so uh, I don't think I'll keep going today on that regard. But let me just close by saying this. Uh, I believe that the family, the household, is an incredibly powerful institution for molding and shaping people into God's image and to help them to accomplish what God wants them to do. That's why God put people in families to begin with. And that's why he, he says the church is to be like the family of God. And so I think it's a powerful tool for us to consider. Uh, first of all, if you're not part of a family or of a church family, I think it's a, a great time for you to consider becoming a part of one because it's in these family groups that we discover God's will and we become shaped into the image of God. And I think it's also uh, for us to consider as a church, you know, those of you that are part of the church already, to uh, emphasize and focus and, and uh, consider how we might make even stronger the family sense that we already have in order to do God's will as they were doing back there in the, in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And so that would be my invitation to you. Uh, uh, John writes in his gospel that to all those who received him, to them he gave the power to become children of God. That is to become a member of God's family. If you don't know Christ as Savior, you're not part of his family, why not come today and accept him and receive him as your Savior and Lord and come into the family of God and uh, begin to follow and join with others in following the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, 
I give thanks and honor and glory to you for your kindness and mercy, and as we sang about today, for your grace. How amazing it is. I thank you for the grace that allows me to stand in front of your congregation and try to share the exciting and the wonderful things from your word. I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit that is here ministering in people's hearts and lives this morning in ways that I don't even suspect I can't even make happen, but you can. And we just pause here in these few moments as we approach our invitation time to open up our hearts to you, to humbly bow before you, to repent of our sins, and receive from your hand the grace and forgiveness and mercy that we need. Thank you for hearing us. In Jesus' name, amen.